This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome back to the North Stars Pioneer Podcast. This is episode number 21, and we're your hosts. I'm Alex Weldon. And I'm Erica Robertson. And today we have the pleasure of talking with not one, but two legends here in, in Pioneer uh, in the dairy industry. And joining us today is um, Bill Mahana and Jim Smith. We're excited to have both of these guys on the podcast. Uh, Bill is the Pioneer Global Nutritional Science Manager. Um, for those who remember Jim from a, a few episodes ago, he's our Dairy Strategic Account Manager uh, for Wisconsin and in parts of Minnesota. So we're thrilled to be welcoming both of them into the show uh, to pick up, to pick their brains on all things silage as we get into the heart of the chopping season. Yes, we're so excited to be chatting with both Bill and Jim today. But before we do, as always, we're going to provide another quick GDU update. So again, based on that April 26th planting date, starting to the west of the geography in St. Cloud, Minnesota, currently sitting at 2,390 GDUs, which is tracking about 222 ahead of normal, and in the next 14 days projected to be sitting at 2,588. Moving on to the east in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, sitting at 2,488 GDUs, which is tracking about 229 ahead of normal, and in the next 14 days projected to be sitting at 2,700 GDUs. And lastly, to the east in Green Bay, Wisconsin, sitting at 2,481 GDUs, which is tracking 450 ahead of normal. So that is way ahead. And in the next 14 days projected to be sitting at 2,693 GDUs. So as we can see, the GDUs continue to pack on to finish out this 2021 crop fast. Many of our, you know, below hundred uh, CRM corn products are gonna be reaching black layer here shortly. So it's, it's almost go time. We're now into the heart of silage chopping season and we can't wait to hear some of these best practices from Bill and Jim today. Thank you, Erica, for our GDU update. With that, let's uh, welcome to our guests to the show. Welcome, Bill and Jim. Morning. Yes, we're so excited to have you guys on. Thank you for your time. To kick us off, um, Bill, I'll have you go first. Could you provide our listeners with a little bit of a bit of a background on you, your educational and professional experiences, and your role within Pioneer? And then we'll give a refresher and update uh, for Jim for those who don't remember having him on a couple weekend week episodes ago. Oh, well, I grew up on a dairy in upstate New York, and I've been with Pioneer for 34 years. So, um, and prior to COVID, I kind of worked the uh, worked with people like Jim all over the globe. Uh, now I just work in my basement. Jim, your turn. All right. So uh, basically been around the dairy industry for the last 40 years um, in as much as uh, nutrition, uh, management, uh, that type of thing. In the last 14 years, I've been with Pioneer in various roles and uh, basically work to bridge that gap between seed and feed and try to make uh, the best and highest amount of feed possible for our dairy producers in uh, the areas I work. 14 years, kind of a new time, new timer, aren't you there, Jim? 14 years, that's all? That's it, that's Jeez. it. 
Well, you got another 20 you got to put in to catch me. That's right. I'm just a kid compared to you, Bill. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Um, could you guys both, I know you elaborated a little bit on it, but could you both give our listeners just a bit of an insight on the geography you guys both cover, starting with you, Bill? As I mentioned, I, I pretty much work with dairy specialists like Jim all around the, the globe, um, doing a lot of work uh, in Europe uh, recently. Uh, Pioneer is the first company to really introduce dent-by-dent dent corn. And if your listeners are wondering, what is dent-by-dent? Dent? Well, that's what we plant in North America. In Europe, there's an awful lot of flint corn. Uh, we don't have flint corn in North America, except if you were to talk about popcorn or, or uh, Indian corn. Um, so it, we also have released our first uh, brown midrib. Pioneer's the first company to release a brown midrib hybrid into Europe. So been working a lot in those geographies um, because they just don't have the experience, uh, particularly with BMR. They have a lot of experience with corn silage. You get into countries like Germany and it's 80% corn silage. Uh, even Wisconsin's only about 30% corn silage. So uh, it's the interesting markets and we learn as much from our international colleagues as, as what we help educate them because again, silage is so important in those geographies. Yeah, and Erica, I mainly, I live near the Twin Cities and vast majority of my time, I take a ride every day and head east to Wisconsin and work pretty much the whole state. Um, I still get plenty of calls from some of my past positions uh, across the Dakotas and Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota from various people I've worked with on uh, topics, especially this time of year. Lots of phone calls coming in. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, you both, for providing um, a little bit of an update on the areas you covered us to give our listeners a frame of reference. Jim, I'm going to direct this one question to you, but Bill, free, feel free to chime in at any point. So can you give our listeners a little bit of an update on corn silage moistures? Where are we sitting at across the geography, Jim? Yeah, so we started uh, basically doing some moisture testing back about the 25th of August down in Dane County area. And we were sitting at plus 75% moisture and only about a 10th of a milk line. Uh, it's progressed, I'd say fairly normal. Um, a week later in Dane County, we were sitting at uh, a little over 73% moisture. Again, this is several samples coming in from different farms, different fields. But as an as a overall average, uh, we were, Gain, we gained about a quarter of a milk line and about you know two to three points of moisture coming down. Um, yesterday, we were in the Durand area and about a week ago there, we were still at about 75 plus on moisture, about a little less than a quarter of a milk line. And as of yesterday, again, we dropped about six or seven points um, and we were up to a half a milk line. So, it seems like in general, it's progressing fairly naturally uh, as far as what we would expect for days and growing degree units and everything else. Um, so I think it's a natural progression, but of course you always have exceptions within fields. But in general, I'd say it's moving along like we'd expect. Um, yesterday here in Wisconsin, it was warm and windy, just like you shared with the GDU update. And we, we could see those moistures start to come down because again, we're so far ahead on GDUs. Um, I think we're starting to even see a little bit of natural senescence in the plant uh, to where things are gonna 
things are going to move. Uh, if we have the, continue to have warm and windy weather, we could be looking at anywhere from three quarters of a point and up on moisture moving out of the plant per day. Um, so it, it, it could move quickly. I think, uh, I think we're in the heart of it and it's going to keep continue to move quickly in the state of Wisconsin. One of the things to keep in mind, Erica, is that it's really that starch deposition that's drying down the plant. Uh, it, it's quite interesting. Um, in fact, one of our uh, sales agencies in southern Wisconsin recently conducted a study where they segmented the plant uh, in 12-inch in uh, increments and looked at the dry matter in the ear and then the dry matter in the plant. And uh, what it really shows is that it's the starch deposition that's drying down the plant. Um, it's interesting if you look at a healthy plant, like Jim said, you may gain half to three quarters of a point uh, a day that you uh, dry down. Well, it's, it's, that's because you're gaining half to three quarters of a point of starch per day. So in a healthy plant, the stalk, even if you were to, to lose leaves, um, uh, like Alex mentioned, um, had some uh, recent uh, uh, hail event. Um, even if you lose some leaves, there's still a tremendous amount of moisture in that stalk. So we're trying to trying to you know educate growers and nutritionists in particular that moisture may not be the target that we're after because we we do such a great job today of of understanding how to pack bunkers and piles and and uh, we we really want to it's good to monitor moisture but it's really important to monitor milk line and and not pull the trigger too fast but again that depends on what things look like in the field. Jim, you might bring up what we talked about a little bit earlier about what you're seeing for tar spot in southern Wisconsin. Yeah, uh, in visiting and, and being in that area, it's accelerating things more than usual. Typically, you have a little bit of an opportunity, a break here, a break there to maybe pull back and get some things done. But um, it seems like the tar spot is really accelerating uh, the plant health in a bad way down south. And that is going to continue to cause problems as far as just having a good product when you get done. Um, typically, what we're looking at is losing leaf tissue uh, that's going to cause uh, probably a more of a precipitous drop in fiber digestibility. We'll typically see, you know, across that harvest timeline from 70 to 60 percent moisture, we'll see about a maybe a three, three and a half point drop in fiber digestibility on a NDFB 24 hour uh, while we're still gaining maybe up to six points of starch, but that tar spot could accelerate that fiber digestibility decrease. And, and that's what they just have to be really moving on because they said it's, it's even happening with the fields that received a fungicide treatment. Uh, it's not having that much of a, an effect in uh, slowing it down and halting it. Well, that field uh, variability is important. Um, I'm actually um, in, in Iowa, Erica, in central Iowa, and I'm working with Iowa State uh, at their dairy. And um, it, it's interesting because they harvested uh, one of our BMRs, uh, planted 250 acres of BMR this year and harvested it. Uh, we're all done, all done with harvest, but what was very interesting and maybe a little bit atypical, but the BMR was healthier than some of the standard silage fields and the standard silage fields had a fungicide on them. So there's a lot of variability out there that we really need to, to look at um, that, that's you know, important to monitor. So you can't just walk in a few of the 
head rows and, and figure out what that field looks like. Um, it, it's, as Jim mentioned, if we lose that uh, plant health, what we really compromise is that fiber digestibility. Maybe one other point Jim mentioned um, in our Pioneer Silage Zone Manual, we have a nice chart that references what Jim was talking about. Um, that's you know like close to two hundred thousand kind of observations in this chart. But when we lose two or three points in fiber digestibility, I know people get all excited about that. But really, that's within the error of the method. It's, it's probably not statistically significant and certainly not biologically significant to the cow to have you know two samples that are two to three points difference in NDF digestibility, whether 24 or 30, uh, it's kind of insignificant. Uh, you start to get four and five points difference uh, in, in NDF digestibility, and then that's significant, I think, to the cow. Jim, you thinking of fiber digestibility, you've done some good work with, with high chopping you, I mean, you might talk about how the growing environment and the variability you see in different farms that you've seen where high chopping had a significant effect and others where it had no effect at all. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, each year we try to benchmark a little bit about where the fiber digestibility is for the growing season, because we know that that's the biggest effect on fiber digestibility is the growing environment, you know, between hybrids. Um, so, the perfect recipe, we believe, for fiber digestibility uh, for a corn plant is probably just moderate heat, moderate amounts of water, and lots of sunlight pre-tassel. And we definitely had that this year uh, in most of Wisconsin, where we had great amount of sunlight, uh, maybe a, obviously more heat than normal. But the biggest negative on fiber digestibility, we believe pre-tassel is excessive water. Well, we didn't have that this year. And so when we went out and did, I think about 28 samples across the state this year, we found only about a two, two and a half percent difference in not points, but two and a half percent difference just between an eight inch chop and a 20 inch chop. Typically what you would expect to see based on some paired comparison research is about a six to 7% difference. Okay, and so in general, I think we're going to have a good fiber digestibility crop across the state. Uh, the other part of the recipe that we really want to concentrate on, Bill's already alluded to, is that post-tassel, what we want is plenty of water, plenty of heat, and plenty of sunshine still to make that starch get deposited because that's where we gain the dry matter tons for that cow with the starch and boy, oh boy, is that the year to have it with $5 plus corn. We wanna have as much starch in that corn silage as we can to keep ration costs as reasonable as possible. So I think it's gonna be a good fiber digestibility year. We've had some timely rains late to where I think we're, we, we're obviously adding starch. Um, the other nice thing that I've seen, we haven't had those big rains, okay? And what I'm seeing in the fields is in a lot of cases where we've had good fertility practices, we're still green from the ground up for the most part. Okay, now, yeah, we have those bottom leaves that snest, but as far as the stock and everything else, boy, we, uh, we've, we've got an opportunity here, you know, with good weather and, and sun and a little bit of all of that, that we can still lay down some starch because we still got a very healthy plant up north, tar spots causing us a little trouble down south. 
So yeah, is there interesting is there any difference to as far as chopping height with uh, you know a conventional corn dual purpose to a BMR? That's a good question, Alex. Um, typically, we see a bigger response in the standard hybrids, the non-BMRs, than we do a BMR. So to expect to get a big response, high chopping BMR, it's not going to be as big of a response when you look at same year, same field, all, all things considered, right? Weather, environment, everything, you're going to have a bigger response in a standard hybrid. But even this year, there was just very little difference between, I think we, out of the 28 samples, I think about 12 of them were BMRs, the other were standard hybrids, and boy, the, the amount of difference, it was a little less than two and a half percent for the BMRs, and about 2.7% difference for the standards, which is really close, really close. And again, this isn't, you know, a strict uh, compared comparison study, but as general numbers, those were really close. In the BMR, you got to remember, you're already, your yield is already compromised a bit. So high chopping, it really probably is not the way to go. So, um, you know, we wouldn't really recommend that. Same thing for using a silage inoculant. Um, you know, we know that corn is very, uh, has a lot of yeast on it. Um, and that's what causes, a, kicks off, initiates a whole response. Heating that we get in silages, both on the face of the pile and also in front of cows, it can affect palatability. And so we typically will recommend our 11C33 uh, to be used on, on, uh, on all silages, BMRs, everything, uh, because it's, it's gives us both the fermentation and the inhibition of yeast. Um, if we get into situations where we had just the opposite of what you guys had, where we had a really wet season early on or irrigated corn, uh, then we would really recommend um, our 11 CFT, which can improve fiber digestibility. Um, but we don't recommend 11 CFT on BMR. It already has, it can make a slight improvement, but it's not really enough to justify, justify using 11 CFT on BMR. So we've, um, we've kind of walked through that's, you know, scouting those acres, three quarter milk line and, and granite, you know, what's, as far as moisture wise, where do you guys like to be? And, um, you know, Bill, you were referring to earlier, just not so much, you know, plant moisture, but that cob and, and you know, um, evaluating the, that milk line. So moisture wise, where, where do we like to fit in on, on uh, corn silage? I'd like to be in an ideal world in a healthy plant. I'd like to be three quarter milk line. That's going to put us in that you know, 63, 64, somewhere in there. Kind of like the moisture that we used to put up silage in tower silos, so we didn't get a lot of runoff. You know, people said, well, you, could, you couldn't put it up that wet, uh, sorry, that dry in a, in a bunker or pile situation because you couldn't get it packed. Well, we know that's simply not the case. We, we do a great job of getting it packed today. We know what the, from use of our infrared cameras, we, we can look and see the packing density really uh, using any kind of heating as a proxy measurement uh, of densities. And again, other technologies have come along, oxygen barrier film, uh, products that contain uh, buchner inoculum like R11C33. Um, those will inhibit uh, the spoilage organisms growth in that silage. So yeah, I'd really like us to get away from moisture in general. Um, and, and in healthy plants, talk about, talk about milk line. 
Um, now, if the plant, as Jim mentioned in the south, has tower spot, it has other foliar diseases, all bets are off. Uh, then we've really got to look at plant health because, you know, what we'll be compromising is fiber digestibility. And as any professionals will tell you, I can always add starch. It may be expensive, I, but I can always add it. But I can't add fiber digestibility. And in these larger dairies that uh, have high inclusion rates of corn silage, uh, we want to be driving intake. That's that's the whole beauty of BMR, why people are are really supportive of BMR in the diet. It's because it drives intakes. So fiber digestibility is really critical. So again, um, in the silage zone manual, Pioneer silage zone manual, that if you don't have one, uh, ask your Pioneer sales rep for one. Um, and uh, there's some nice charts in there that show you kind of that, that moisture or dry matter uh, by kernel maturity. Um, but again, I think even as, as Jim mentioned, when we do, when our sales agents uh, do burn down days, uh, which is something Pioneer's been doing for as long as I've been with Pioneer, but we want to not only monitor moisture, but we also want to really target and monitor milk line, which is what we're doing today. So how about kernel, um, our, our kernel process? You, yeah, you mentioned kernel processing, Alex. Yeah. So as, if we go to a more mature kernel, <clears throat> obviously that means we need to do a good job of, of monitoring kernel processing. So, you know, the nutritionists look at a, a kernel processing score. That's a, an analyst that's available at any commercial lab. Um, that methodology was developed uh, here at Pioneer. Um, and we shared that protocol with every commercial lab in the, in the world. And, uh, we published some of the first work in the Journal of Dairy Science on kernel processing. Um, and what we know is that it's very, very important. Uh, and we can tell that and nutritionists can look at it because if you do some fecal starch analysis, you know, we, we like to see that fecal starch probably below, certainly below 3%. Most dairies can be below 2%. And there's a lot of dairies that are below 1% fecal starch. So that means, boy, we're doing a good job of getting those kernels processed. So if you don't have one of those Pioneer corn silage processing cups. Again, um, talk to your sales representative and, and uh, we can get you one. And the directions are right on the side of it. Awesome. Yeah, and, oh, go ahead, Jim. Well, and typically what we're looking for in general is, is two or less half or whole kernels in that 32 ounce sample. And if you're doing that, you're doing a great job. And that's, again, one of the watch outs for this year with harvest accelerating, we have a lot of acres that uh, get done by custom operators that do a great job, but they've also got a lot of time demands. And one of the things that can happen is that they're trying to move through the fields too quickly, maybe don't have that processor at the uh, depth that they should, and we can end up with too much. And so we recommend, you know, every, every, three loads, every four loads, it's almost worth having someone right there at the silo taking those samples, checking to make sure where you're at on that processing. Because again, uh, that this year, that's gonna be liquid gold going out the backside of those cows if they don't get a good job done with the price of corn. We did a field study in Wisconsin <clears throat> several years ago that we, that we reported on at the uh, American Dairy Science meetings. 32 dairies in Wisconsin, all high producing dairies, all over hundred pounds in the high string. Looked at the particle size of all of the starchy feed. So high moisture corn, dry corn, uh, sent it into the lab and, and looked at micron size. 
And obviously you can look at dry corn, high moisture corn, you know whether it's ground properly or not. But with corn silage, it can be a little bit confusing with all that green biomass in there. And um, what was interesting is all the dairies, except for two, had below 3% starch. As I mentioned, many of them had below one. But there were two dairies, one that had 6% starch in the manure and one that had 10% starch in the manure. Now, they were still getting a lot of milk out of cows, but I can tell you it was costing the nutritionists to, to add more starch into that diet to compensate what was coming out the back end. So as Jim mentioned, the value of corn today, uh, and, or anytime we can't afford it. The other thing is it's, it's not only an economic loss, but uh, there are some syndromes in cows, hemorrhagic bowel syndrome, that we believe is highly correlated with starch escaping the rumen and escaping the intestines and getting down into the hindgut. Uh, dairy farmers will know it as bloody gut disease. Um, and again, if we can do a good job of kernel processing, we'll alleviate some of those issues as well. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for the insights on, you know, all things pro kernel processing. Kind of taking a step back, I know we've covered a lot of tips and tricks for staging and scouting silage acres to determine when they're going to be ready for chopping. Do you have any other tips and tricks that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I'd, I'd say the biggest thing is you need to understand what the physical properties are when it comes to the milk line to understand, because again, it's that milk line is so critical to determine really what your dry matter yields uh, potentially could be in that field. If you take it too early, you're going to give up a lot of dry matter tons. The other thing is just taking that overall perspective of the field. As you go through, you're looking to say, okay, do I have diseases showing up in the ear? Uh, potentially, that could be a mycotoxin problem uh, that may cause you to take it somewhat earlier, potentially. Um, you look at the overall plant health. Am I just fired up all the way to the ear as far as nitrogen deficiency? Again, that could end up uh, causing you to not receive what you expect as far as dry matter tons. And then the leaf disease is again, reducing the fiber digestibility. So it's just kind of a general look at the field, understanding what the physical properties are as far as milk line and overall plant moisture, and just kind of putting that all together based on staging it with the other fields that you've got to harvest and understanding what comes first. And we're doing a lot of work in that area right now uh, with a silage prediction worksheet that we've been working on for four or five years that takes, you know, the actual hybrid, uh, its GDU uh, requirements, and basically saying, okay, based on the environment that it's been in, everything else, when should that come into the harvest window? And so far, we, we continue to refine it. We're refining it again this year with some uh, satellite imagery and using a prediction equation for that, and then ground truthing it with actual samples taken on the ground uh, to find out where we're at and how close it is. It's already been very helpful in a lot of ways to say, maybe not this is the exact moisture of the field, but it's done a very good job of predicting field A is first, B, C, D, on down the line, and, and letting people know you better be starting here, uh, you can let this field stay back as far as getting an overall good pile of silage. And you know, Erica, that Pioneer is the only company that's basic in silage inoculants and people might understand why. Um, the main reason is because 
the founder of our company, Henry Wallace, was as interested in animal genetics and poultry genetics as he was in corn genetics. And what we realized early on is we could sell growers the best genetics in the world. And if we didn't manage it properly through the fermentation process, then they weren't receiving the benefit of our genetics. So Jim kind of highlighted the importance, all the important things in the field. But then again, you know, harvest is extremely important. We talked about, you know, processing, chop length. Uh, again, we don't like to get make a standard recommendation for chop length because it, it depends on what all is in the diet. If we need to get more scratch from the corn silage, then you'll find guys chopping maybe a little longer than 19 millimeters, uh, especially if they got a shredlage unit. Um, if, if they've got plenty of scratch coming in from long stem hay or, or other things, we can chop a little finer and, and maybe nick more kernels at the, at the cutter head and also, you know, pack it a little bit easier. But, you know, there's a lot of, lot, lot of room there and it depends on e each dairy that the nutritionist should be working with the grower on that. But, but really that fermentation process, you know, covering it uh, correctly with oxygen barrier film, if it's a bunker, putting plastic down the walls and not just on the top. Um, and feed out management, you know, do we have a facer? Do we have a telehandler that goes all the way to the top of the pile? Or, you know, are we piling it way over the top of walls on bunkers? You know, all those issues really make a big, big difference in terms of that cow receiving the full benefit of the, all the genetics and, and crop fertility and, and cost uh, spent on that. So that, you know, it's important today because we're thinking about harvest, but by golly, that fermentation process and all that, can can really be important as well. Wonderful. Thank you guys so much that our listeners will really appreciate that as I know both Alex and I, I'm sure you both have been getting lots of questions on, on that. So thank you. Trying to kind of wrapping up our discussion with you guys today. Another hot topic that we've been getting lots of questions about is what is the future of BMR? Would love just to hear your both is comments on and, and thoughts on that. Want to go first, Bill? Well, uh, yeah, we're, as I mentioned, we've, we were the first company to re release BMR into Europe, uh, a very long season, 118-day uh, non-GMO uh, for the European market. Um, we're excited. We have several stations that are really focused on breeding BMR. Uh, we have uh, stations that where we um, look at disease tolerance. Uh, it's no secret that BMR being lower in lignin uh, doesn't handle drought quite as well, and there's been, you know, may not handle uh, some of the foliar diseases as well as standard hybrids, but uh, we're really working hard to improve that. We've got breeders that are definitely um, um, have BMR as part of their target, part of their goal to, to bring us some new genetics. So, yeah, as I mentioned, I've been doing this for 34 years. I've never been more excited about our opportunity and our lineup when it comes to both standard hybrids and BMR. So there's a lot of, lot of uh, excitement at, at Pioneer, at Corteva uh, for, for BMR. Uh, again, really the only seed company that's even interested in BMR. Uh, and if you look at, you know, if you look at, look at our focus on silage, who we have in the field that's focused on silage, my team, which contains a veterinarian, and, and another PhD uh, dairy nutritionist, uh, we're very, very much focused on, on those markets. Um, but I'd like to turn it over to Jim for a second because Jim has done a tremendous job of, of 
scouring the literature and looking to see, you know, how we best utilize BMR on the farm so that we reduce our total overall agronomic risk and also improve intakes and not hurt feed efficiency. So Jim, maybe a little bit of an overview of, of uh, some of the research that you've uh, pulled together on that topic. Yeah, it, it's been an interesting uh, trek through the literature. And what really came out from all the studies that I looked at, the critical point about BMR, as everyone knows, is that it improves fiber digestibility with less lignification in the plant compared to a standard hybrid. And, but there's been over the years cases where that improved fiber digestibility didn't really respond in what you'd expect for milk production. And the early work that was done at Michigan State, it was very obvious why cows responded to BMR with better milk production was because typically they ate more feed and that additional feed would generate milk production. And so it was like, why aren't we getting responses in some cases in some of these studies? And what came through and what I found was that one of the critical factors is, is that we gotta make sure that the BMR being fed on a farm is getting into the pre-fresh cows, at least that last 21 to 28 days before they calve, because it sets them up for success. Uh, a dairy cows, you know, when their dry matter intakes are challenged is just before they calve and right after they calve, which is so critical for that animal's health and continued health throughout the lactation. So when we really searched through the literature and, and looked at what the differences were, we found exactly that, that where we got BMR into those cows compared to a standard hybrid pre-calving, we had better responses in early lactation. And it just makes sense because dry matter intakes are really challenged in those two periods, just before they calve and right after they calve. Well, right after they calve, they go into a very high rate of milk production. And if they have to try to mobilize too many body reserves too quickly because they can't eat enough feed, that's when you get into trouble on a dairy. And for every dairyman, the cow that they want is the one that they don't know about because she's not having any trouble. She's just eating feed and making milk. And so that's the critical part. And, and when we looked at this, as Bill mentioned, we do have some agronomic challenges with BMRs compared to standards. Um, and what I summarized within Pioneer, our Pioneer BMRs, same uh, relative maturity within five days over three year period, we had anywhere from about a 11 to 15% on the average, about a 12% drop in actual tonnage on paired comparisons. So that, that's a big number for dairymen, especially with the land prices and everything else that in a lot of places. So we, we kind of put together a program where we said, hey, let's rethink our silage options a little bit here. BMR is a fantastic product because it gives us that natural advantage that we can bring in without having to add anything to the diet, so to speak, to help the cows other than a better more digestible fiber source. And BMRs compared to a standard hybrid, a term that's been used is that fiber is just more fragile in the cow. So it breaks down a little quicker, moves out a little quicker, but what's that do? That allows the cow to eat more feed. 
and reduce the amount of body reserves that they're pulling off to try to make that milk that they're genetically disposed to do. So let's, let's utilize that knowledge about where we can get the BMR into them pre-calving, get it into them post-cave for some certain amount of time, a minimum of three, probably the three to five weeks, but maybe up to 50 to 60 days. So we've got a period on a dairy where you could be looking at growing 80 days worth of corn silage that is BMR, and the remaining 285 days would be a standard hybrid where you're not gonna suffer in milk production and at the same time, you're gonna gain agronomically in the field. So I think it can be a win-win utilizing both. And we have great products, both on the BMR side and on the standard side, that's gonna make up some of the deficiencies that we can encounter with BMR as far as leaf disease, drought tolerance, and just overall tonnage. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity there to, I think, craft a program that gives you the best of all worlds. Uh, it does require a little bit of extra work on grouping cows, and you might have to manage two phases of silage, but most dairies where there's a will, there's a way. So I think, I think it's a workable program. And again, one that we need that fiber digestibility that BMR brings in that late stage of gestation and in that early part of lactation. And uh, I've, we've got several herds doing that, already. I just summarized that here probably two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and um, three of the top herds that I work with that have implemented that program, I think very specifically and very well, year over year, uh, they've gained over 1,100 pounds on their rolling herd average without sacrificing anything really on components or anything else, and yet they've had these gains in the field agronomically by going from all BMR to this option of having partial BMR and partial standard hybrid. So I think it's a workable program, takes a little extra management, but uh, I think the benefits are there that uh, economically and for the cow health that are very positive. And not to be too cow oriented, but uh, for Darren and listening out there, the data is very clear that the best time for heat abatement in the dairy cow's life is in the dry period. Now, a lot of people will be confused by that, but. It goes right back to what Jim was saying that a lot of people were saying, well, let's just feed BMR to the lactating cows. The biggest bang for your buck is in that transition ration. Um, and, and then as Jim said, in the high, in the high group. So it, it's really, really key. We, we do have a, a very, uh, very nice two page um, handout that we can provide that detail uh, specifically all the studies that Jim referenced. Um, so if you'd like a copy of that, talk to your Pioneer sales representative and uh, we can get you a copy of that and you can share it with your nutritionist. And, and both Jim and I are very open um, to, to talk to nutritionists as well if they'd like to you know, find out a little bit more about experience. And, and, and obviously Jim is the best one there because he's got some herds that he's working with closely that have implemented it. Excellent. So <clears throat> with that, I, you know, as far as uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you guys? Uh, for me, it's uh, james.smith at pioneer.com or my cell phone is 507-381-7614. And the best way to get a hold of me is just bill.mahana at pioneer.com. Um, and if you get a copy of the silage zone manual, uh, 
in the front cover is uh, my team and our cell phone numbers and, and uh, emails. So uh, if you don't have a copy of the silage zone manual, you need to get one. Excellent. Excellent. So with that, guys, we uh, really appreciate your time today um, and joining us. I know our dairy farmers sure are going to appreciate this podcast. Um, do you have any closing remarks, uh, anything that we should keep top of mind before, uh, before we close here? Yeah, I predict Iowa State's going to beat Iowa this Saturday. Um, beyond that, uh, um, I don't care about Kansas State. There is a guy on this uh, call who probably has a, cares about Kansas State. By the way, you may not realize it, but Jim Smith not only is a CCA agronomist, he also was the herdsman at, at, uh, at, at Kansas State University in Manhattan. He was the herdsman of the dairy there for a number of years when he was in grad school. So Jim comes to us with not only uh, terrific agronomic expertise, but he knows a little bit about cows too. <laughs> awesome. You know, I, I, I'd say as a closing comment, um, you know, so to speak, you know, we're going to be getting this crop off and we're going to be getting a lot of things done and it'll already be time to start thinking about 2022 crop. Uh, I know we concentrate a lot about getting our manure out and getting that into the fields. Um, but again, there's a lot to think about as far as next year's crop, trying to get the most out of this crop, but also preparing for the following year. Um, a lot of the things that uh, we're dealing with uh, in Wisconsin is we do a lot of corn on corn and we're starting to see some of the challenges and to start thinking through our field rotations and everything else I think is really critical with some of the diseases we have popping up like tar spot uh, that's relatively new to us but we still have the gray leaf and the northern corn leaf blight and eye spot um, that can cause us trouble and we know one of the best things we can do is is be rotating our crops uh, and, and being aware of where we've had trouble in the past because that residue will continue to carry over and continue to cause us more trouble. So uh, I think there's a lot of planning that can go into 2022 and some of the other things that we've talked about on rethinking your corn silage options uh, to optimize not only your cows, but your acres. Absolutely. Well, with that, Bill, Jim, thank you so much for your time today and for being here today. We really appreciate it. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the North Stars Pioneer Podcast. Reminder to rate and review the podcast. Tell us what you want to hear. Share with a farmer friend and find us on any of your favorite podcast apps. We will see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.